Good evening, everyone, and welcome to today's event, Lessons from Data Sharing During the Pandemic, supported by Scott Logic. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate here at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you to this event, both in the building and joining us online. A particular welcome to those of you who are now working for a different department to the one you started the week in. That kept us very busy yesterday, didn't it? I'm pleased to say that we've not had to reshuffle any of our excellent panel tonight, and I'll be introducing them properly shortly. First, some housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record. It's being recorded as well as being live streamed. And if you'd like to join in on social media, we're live tweeting from at IFG events, and the hashtag is IFG data. Before I introduce the event and our panel, um, I'm going to introduce Chris Ferguson, Managing Director at Scott Logic, to say a few words. Chris. Thanks very much, Gavin. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Chris Ferguson. I'm the Managing Director of Scott Logic. Um, three years ago today, words like COVID and coronavirus started to appear in the news. Uh, at that time, myself and uh, Jess on the panel were both working in the UK's government digital service. Uh, what followed over the couple of months uh, after that was an incredible mobilisation across the civil service, across the public sector um, in the UK. Um, we were asked as the Government Digital Service to lead on the digital data and technology coordination um, across Whitehall. Uh, and the first thing we did was establish um, you know, a cross-government task force that met every two weeks, sorry, every two weeks, twice a week, to talk about all manner of policy, all manner of successful practice, whatever we could find that worked so we could disseminate it, share it across everyone else. Um, that prompted a period that certainly in my 20 years as a civil servant, um, I've never seen the like of around collaboration, around cutting across boundaries between national and local government, devolved administrations, uh, between central government, uh, and of course the health services and social care services. We were very proud at the time to be involved in creating the Clinically Extremely Vulnerable People Service, which went from being an idea to delivering food and medicine to vulnerable people who weren't able to leave the house, with the first of those packages arriving within eight or nine days of the service being dreamt up. That's about as close to a miracle as I think I've seen in public sector delivery. Over the course of 2020, over 125 digital public services were created. Um, and that towards the end of that year, we actually carried out a retrospective. And the one thing that came up time and time again was that if we could have bottled anything uh, and take it forward with us, it would be that kind of spirit of collaboration, that desire to work across government, across boundaries, uh, across the private sector as well, lots of partners there, private sector and third sector, um, to say, right, this is what it takes to move things, get things done quickly, to break down barriers, you know, and to overcome inertia uh, in, in, in all kinds of public services. Um, so we're very proud of Scott Logic to be part of creating this report. Jess and I now work at Scott Logic, not in the UK government, um, but we're really proud to have worked with, again, so many people, many of you who went through that experience as well as public servants and people, you know, helping to address the pandemic, uh, to have captured some of those lessons here to make sure that those precious lessons are captured and are carried forward and do continue to inform public services and their development. Um, so thanks again from us at Scott Logic, uh, and look forward to hearing what the panel has to say. Back to you, Gavin. Thank you very much, Chris. So lessons from data sharing during the pandemic. 
Share, as you've heard, sharing data across and beyond the public sector was critical to the government's response to COVID-19. The National Data Strategy called it the high watermark of data use in government, as information about the virus and its consequences was used to inform policy and operational decisions through initiatives like the NHS COVID-19 Data Store and NHS National Data Platform. And data was used to stand up some of those new public services, like the Clinically Extremely Vulnerable People Service and various business support schemes. But there were also things that didn't go quite so well and could have gone better, such as making data available to different levels and parts of government and engaging the public about how their data was going to be used. Over the last few months, the Institute for Government and Scott Logic have held and written up six roundtable discussions based on particular themes and case studies. The legislation underpinning data sharing, general practice data for planning and research, GPDPR, and data sharing for counter-fraud activities, as well as the COVID-19 data store, the Clinically Extremely Vulnerable People Service, and sharing between national, devolved, and local government. We've been asking what went well, what could have gone better, and ultimately, what lessons government should learn about data sharing from the pandemic experience. You can read all six roundtable write-ups on the IFG website, and we'll soon be publishing a short report synthesising key themes and lessons from the pandemic from those discussions. You'll be getting a sneak preview of some of those lessons tonight. So what should government learn from its experiences of data sharing during the pandemic? Well, we have a fantastic panel to answer that question and many more for you this evening. First, we'll hear from my colleague, Paul Shepley, data scientist here at the IFG. He'll be summarizing some of the key findings from our project. We'll then ask our other panelists for their main takeaways about government data sharing during the pandemic. We'll hear from Ming Tang, Chief Data and Analytics Officer at NHS England. She joined the NHS in 2009 as, and was instrumental in establishing the NHS COVID-19 data store and national data platform, which is one of our case studies. After that, we'll hear from Juliet Whitworth, Head of Research and Information at the Local Government Association. Uh, Juliet and her team commission and conduct research and analysis to provide evidence for the LGA as it um, supports local authorities and represents the sector in relation to all things data. Then we'll turn to our final panellist, Jess McAvoy, Principal Consultant at Scott Logic. As you've heard, before joining Scott Logic, Jess was a senior civil servant at the Government Digital Service and again was involved in some of the uh, case study projects uh, that we've looked at during the course of this research. So I'll ask each of our speakers to talk for up to five minutes. I might, depending on time, ask them a few more questions, and then we'll come to you, our audience, here in the room and online uh, for some other questions as well. If you're online, you can use Slido to submit those questions, and then we'll finish by 7pm. So without any further ado, I will turn to Paul to uh, summarise some of the things that we've found. Super. Thank you very, very much, Gavin. Uh, good evening, everyone. It is my unenvious task to try and distill six case studies and a final report into five minutes. So we'll see how this goes. Um, the pandemic showed uh, what was possible with data, um, from evaluating public services to underpinning new ones at a speed that was, dreamt, that was only dreamt of previously. And our research is aimed to find kind of the secrets to those successes. First off, I'd say that the pandemic experience showed that the sort of technical and legislative barriers only exist in the mind of the beholder. I know that's bullish and a bit provocative, um, but the fact is that some pandemic services were successfully created at speed, and that's despite involving some of the hardest types of data, such as individual level data and confidential health information. And for me, this underpins what can be done if everybody wants it to happen. 
Um, and in the pandemic, it really was a has-to-be-done problem rather than a want-to-do problem. So just unpacking those sort of technical legislative bits um, before I move on. Government data tends to sit across sort of multiple systems and networks which aren't instantly compatible. However, that doesn't need to present, prevent data being shared, but it can cause a sort of time delay to making the data share happen and represent an additional cost to the department or organization that would need to incur that cost to make the data available. Then on legislation, the current provisions in the Data Protection Act and UK GDPR, combined with the Information Commissioner's Office Code of Conduct uh, so, and Data Sharing Code, offer useful guidance to what is permissible and how data might be legally shared. A key moment during this piece of research was sort of the explanation of how the current legislation was genuinely useful for enabling new data sharing agreements and that it would likely have been harder to share the data with fewer rules. So more rules, more fun. Instead, data sharing is often made difficult by mismatched incentives and perceptions of risk. An organization that wants to use data in a new service that it wants to pr provide has to persuade the organization that might originally hold that data to share. And they, which might need time or resource that that data holder may not necessarily have. And all parties involved have to accept that level of, a level of risk um, in terms of data security or public, or public perceptions and more. So how do we bring that together? How do we answer those kind of factors? And in that pandemic, it took, I think, sort of three main things to happen. A really strong sense of purpose. Project teams knew exactly the service or the policy they were supporting with the backing of senior civil servants and politicians. So they could make this happen and it was clear that it needed to happen quickly. Working in multidisciplinary teams really helped prevent sort of future knock-on effects spiking projects at a later date. We heard how working with information governance, legal, technical, and policy professions all working at the same time avoided running into later issues, being able to work through sort of legal considerations early on in the project, making sure that the technical solution matched the policy that was being implemented, and that strengthened the quality of the final technical product that was delivered. And then finally, really strong public engagement, as public trust was, is critically important to make a project or service successful. And the challenge now will be to sustain these practices, as we're beginning to see that some old habits die hard um, in the data sharing kind of landscape. So I'll quickly, if I've got time, um, summarize the kind of key findings of the research. First, um, the Data Protection and uh, Digital Information Bill, I should get that right, should retain sort of data protection officers and data protection uh, impact assessments, given their sort of demonstrated utility during the pandemic of reducing legal uncertainties and enabling data sharing. <coughs> and the bill should have some, some stronger provisions around citizen engagement and data flows as part of government's emergency planning. Secondly, stronger data relationships are needed between different levels of government between the UK and devolved nations, as well as sort of national and local government in England. Two key elements that we recommend here would be a key a sort of data brokering function to facilitate data passing from local to national government and vice versa to support both local and national government function. And a data sharing framework in England covering sort of local authorities, directors of public health and other organizations to help simplify data sharing across organizations and provide further clarity to that first step of creating a data sharing agreement. And then finally, a data sharing playbook 
to help public servants build new services founded on the use of data. This should explain how to sort of minimize barriers and provide resources, explaining who to engage at what stage of the process to really simplify it and rationalize it. And either with this, within this data, play, data sharing playbook or in addition, there should be guidance and resources explicitly addressing how to best conduct public engagement over data sharing. And I look forward to discussing all these elements and more with the panel and yourselves uh, this evening. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, we'll go next to Ming. Evening, everyone. Um, so I was um, the senior responsible officer for the COVID-19 data store. And I, I guess our learnings from COVID is it's very much like Chris and, and Paul have already said, bringing teams together, working collaboratively, a single goal, but also the permissive, um, the COPE regulations gave a level of assurance and per permissiveness to share data. We were then able to bring those people to create um, some governance around who we share data with, what they were using the data for, what level. But what we actually, what was most interesting and supportive was that we ended up sharing data, but not sharing lots and lots of copies of data everywhere. We, we actually managed to have a, a secure data store that did the dissemination. So bringing data together so that the dissemination was governed and actually suitable for the purpose. The thing we moved towards was rather than just giving data out to everybody, was what's the specific use case that you have, what analysis are you trying to do, and is the data elements suitable for what you're trying to solve? And I think some of those need to go into the data sharing frameworks of the future. The public engagement is really important, and I think for us, actually giving local um, systems the ability to engage with their local public around population health. Some of the trickier pieces of data that we really want to understand um, in terms of inequalities in health and care are really important and that can only come about if we have a public dialogue about that. Um, I'll give you an example. Pre-COVID, pre a long time ago, pre-2012, um, we did a piece of work in South Yorkshire where we looked at what was the utilisation of services. And we found that you know, the top 100 families actually utilise probably 65, 70% of services across education, police, health, um, social services. That's a real nugget of information. It wasn't identifiable, but actually how do you engage the public to say you are one of those families because we want to do good, and you can only do that in a local system. It's not something that we should be doing nationally. So the dilemma of what, where you hold what level of data, how you use that and how you make the case to the public is part of the learning from COVID, but also the hard yards that we now need to do now that we're coming out of the pandemic. But I think we got much clearer ideas around the data um, sharing framework, what's necessary, how we actually use the DPIA so, to make sure that the right level of granularity around data flows, the actual acceptance that that is necessary because this data is sensitive and therefore to do it properly, you might as well do the hard yards rather than argue the process and then have the delays. So there's lots of learnings about, and a lot of it is cultural. A lot of it is how do you bring multidisciplinary teams together so that they, they understand they don't need the entirety of the 
health record, but they do need specific information to do care coordination, or they need it to make understanding of who in that population hasn't come forward for a vaccine, or who in that population hasn't come forward for their um, vulnerable food parcel or whatever. And that can only be done under a framework and an understanding of the purpose that you're using that data to. Brilliant. Thank you, Ming. And those points about uh, the importance of thinking locally bring us perfectly onto Juliet. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to start by talking about, um, or by acknowledging a lot of the positives that happened during the pandemic in relation to data sharing, um, particularly the relationship between local government and the data people within um, central government, who I know worked really, really hard to get the data out that was needed. Um, but um, I'm thinking about some of the lessons, and so inevitably they're things that I think might have been improved. Um, so the first one is that um, I think there's a lesson that I hope government understand maybe better now about councils. They can be trusted to take data about citizens from central government to hold it safely and securely, and what's more, use it, uh, both in terms of... Um, finding people who may have been shielding, who couldn't leave, who needed support, but also simply to undertake their statutory duties. So the fact that they need to um, manage outbreaks, that they need to support vaccine rollout and assure themselves that the vaccine programmes are working. Um, so that was really important. And at times it felt that perhaps those statutory duties and the need for data to do that wasn't always understood. Um, uh, the second um, lesson that I took was that it's not just about data sharing, but it's also about the speed of data sharing and the quality of data being shared and the ability of councils to implement locally the decisions that were being made nationally was impacted by both of those things. And I think there's probably some actions that we need to be taking now outside of a crisis um, to make some improvements to both of those uh, should they be needed again one day. Um, and then finally, just the role of public health and actually also social care in the health system overall. Um, they're a fundamental component of the overall system um, and it felt at times that that wasn't always understood in central government um, and that perhaps hampered sometimes that speed of data flow and um, the, the level at which data flowed. So those, those would be my three takeaways. And I think there's certainly things that we might want to be doing now to put improvements in outside of a crisis, um, should they be needed in the future. Thank you, Juliet. Jess. Um, so during that early stage, I was part of a team who had to develop a technical way to um, register people who were um, vulnerable and asking for help with, um, uh, put them into a system so that that data could be shared out with folks around local authorities um, and sometimes private sector like the supermarkets to uh, get kind of essential supplies and support at the point in time when people were shielding. Um, I think some of the lessons for me from that process were, you know, it, things moved extremely fast. Things that, for other programmes of work that I've been involved with, you know, it's taken me in the past a year to negotiate access to a bit of data that I need 
for a service that government wants me to build. Um, it's not my idea. <laughs> Someone wants me to build it. So, uh, you know, for the first time, you know, that was a conversation that would happen on a Saturday morning and then Saturday afternoon it was agreed. So I think it's, it was a massive learning just to see that it could actually be done um, that quickly. Um, and it made me reflect at the time on what was different. And I think, you know, to echo your point, Ming, around the common purpose, I think that was really significant and it's something that's come up before because you know there's lots of cross-government initiatives to try and deliver something across different departments and I think the the barrier that we tend to hit with those is um, is the classic one around what gets measured gets done departments don't always have enough money time or people to to kind of do everything that they are being asked to do so they prioritize the things that they're required to do by their top-down incentives and during the pandemic, we saw everyone working towards the same top-down incentives. So I do think going forward, those common goals need to also include measurement across departments for their contribution into the delivery of, of anything like, like cross-government data sharing. But also the money needs to be fixed. <laughs> like Departments need to be funded to do the work to make these systems talk to each other. Um, you know, there's a lot of legacy to kind of deal with in that space. So the technology is not usually the complicated bit, but, um, but it does need to be done. And it is the thing that kind of has a drag effect on, um, on kind of progress. And then I think um, one of the other factors that made things move really quickly, and I definitely saw it in Ming's team, is that, um, you know, that data literate leadership at multiple different levels. You know, you had this like really amazing blend of experts um, who could just understand the impact of the work that they were doing. And I saw that in uh, my team as well. And, you know, I think that's not something that you can outsource to someone with a single responsibility. <coughs> it's a bit like the early stages of health and safety legislation. Uh, you know, like now we don't need to go and look up what the rule is. We know <coughs> we're not really supposed to be in a ladder against a wall at work. Uh, we've learned that. And I think, you know, we all have to have that same level of lucidity and, and understanding around what the requirements are of data sharing so that we can make proper decisions at any level in an organisation. Um, and I think the third bit is, has already also been touched on is that multidisciplinary team. Uh, I know everybody says that that's a good thing, um, but it's essential. It's essential. Like if we hadn't had the data um, protection officers and the lawyers involved in the technical design of the architecture at, like from day one for the vulnerable people service, we would have had to rework it about seven or eight times. Um, you know, it's absolutely critical to have kind of policy, legal security right there alongside architects and developers. Um, because designing public services uh, that are either going to be used by members of the public or are for them in another way, you know, it's complex. It's complex, and there are things uh, that you need from experts across a range of different disciplines to get a good outcome. Great. Thank you, Jess. Plenty to pick up on from all of that, and I'll come to you uh, in the audience shortly. But I think one thing that you all touched on was how to sustain some of the good practice that we've seen beyond the immediate crisis, which, which gave an urgency to it. In fact, Paul Allen online has sort of said, if COVID presented an urgent and important requirement for data sharing, why not now, if not before, climate change, poverty, etc.? So you know, there are quite a lot of other big issues around. 
how can we sustain some of the good things that went on in e either with other emergencies or beyond emergencies in a sort of business as usual setting? I don't know who wants to take that really easy question first. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've gone from pandemic crisis to recovery crisis in the NHS and, you know, we're getting battered, whichever way you look, in, in the press that, you know, don't have enough workforce, we don't. So actually using the data to support operational decision making so that we can make best use of resources, plan capacity, um, better throughput of hospitals, I think it's really important. That has to be done both locally with the national, within a national framework. Um, that, yeah, that for me is using that energy and the way that we engage and work as multidisciplinary teams, taking that through as a culture. Then I think the other bit is there is a bit of managing the risk in a way that is transparent and, and clear what we're trying to achieve and only using the bits of data that's necessary to make that decision. So being clearer about the use case, being clearer about the purpose, that's what we would like to carry forward. Um, I, I think, I think the, the, the cross-cutting top-down incentives for departments to actually change, you know, they have to be baked in. Um, I, I've, I like the point around public engagement too. I think there's lots of uh, projects that have failed, uh, mainly just because they haven't sort of understood deeply enough what the concerns are that are being raised and then forthrightly and directly addressed them. Um, and I think there's, there's something around, um, I think, capability. Uh, we, we mustn't kind of, you know, ignore, ignore this kind of surge of expertise that was brought together on purpose, but through phone calls and emails, <laughs> getting people into the room who could solve a problem. That's not BAU, you know. I think we have to make some changes there around making sure that all of those people can make those decisions. I would agree with, with um, Ming's point about the way to take it, to take it forward is to, to routinely look at some of this and put frameworks and processes in place for the new, what's effectively the new crises. Mm. But actually, I still feel, um, which is what I was touching on, that, that for any new crisis, it would be good to reflect and maybe start putting in place something like I understand Wales have, which is a, a framework that is essentially in advance, they have agreed a data sharing framework between emergency services and others, so that some of that work is done already. And I feel that actually in England, we would benefit from something like that as well. Um, and once the emergency one is done, then you know, potentially you can broaden that to other crises. Um, as well, or other, you know, issues that need dealing with. But, but that framework and some of that advanced preparation, because that data sharing element is often what takes the time, um, and that, that's a way to shave some, some of that time off. And I think it's about building up those use cases and then and sort of trialling it at that kind of local level, because there's no reason that this stuff has to only exist at a national scale but instead it can be sort of in pockets in terms of, you know, whether it's the Southwest have done something or South Yorkshire have done something, and then bringing those kind of case studies out into the open more, more so that other areas can learn from those experiences because it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution necessarily, but something needs to be done in that kind of experiment, that policy experimentation almost 
to be able to sort of build, find better cases, find different use cases, and then assemble those together. I think it's a really good point. It's bringing the data and analytics to the fore of policy making and strategy mm. development rather than justify it afterwards, <laughs> which is often what my analysts hate. Um, but, you know, actually being a bit more forward thinking in, in that space. And to do that, you do need to have the leaders actually understand what the analysis is actually, what the option and what the questions are. So, you know, you can, you need to do both. You need to upskill people to do the analysis and use the platforms, et cetera, but you also need to upskill the people that are receiving and um, interpreting that information. You've partly preempted my next question, um, which is something that a few of you have mentioned already, and it was another theme that came through in quite a few of the roundtables, which was that question about data literacy in leadership positions. What does that look like? What do we need from politicians, senior civil servants and others to be able to understand uh, this yeah. field? It's quite a scary prospect, isn't it, data literacy? It's quite an insulting term. Right? If you're a senior leader, to be told you're date, not date, you, know, you need data literacy, it's kind of not in the tone that you would expect. So one of the things that we've looked at is thinking about working more collaboratively with senior leaders, with junior analysts, so that they've got someone that can sit alongside them and explain the analysis and in an unthreatening way, so that because it's it's a it's a sharing of the knowledge that makes a whole. It's not one side or the other. So actually placing people together and actually it's really great learning. You know, when I what used to work in consultancy, if you get your bright young analysts sat with the senior guys, they they grow so much quicker. And then, you know, you'll have the laggards that wanted everything printed off and all of a sudden they're using all the latest tricks because that cross-fertilisation is, is, is a power of it. So, I, you know, yes, there are things that we need to do from a competency perspective and a share, but actually making it OK to ask questions is a big part of it. Exactly that. In fact, I think one of the really key sort of characteristics is a curiosity and a willingness to ask questions because it's really rare the data gives you the answer but it allows you to ask questions and dig under so working with analysts and yeah. being willing to ask questions and understand I think is definitely a key skill and driving scenario based analysis as part of the norm right so actually planning out the pieces of work so you're looking for multiple options it's optionality senior guys really want, then they want to understand the impact of those options. So making that much more explicit as part of the deliverable. I really like that idea as well of having the, the kind of junior sort of experts uh, with the senior folks. I think um, there's, you know, lots of senior folks around government, it's the part of their job is to tell a story that someone even more senior than them understands, right? And, and the data is the thing that kind of swings that story. So, you know, no one's going to kind of uh, be unhappy about being given more tools to be able to do that more effectively, I think. But I think you're right around the language. It's got to be done in such a way, you know, that it's, um, that people are in the right frame of mind to kind of absorb the lesson. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that storytelling element, you know, as well as just being able to make sense of the data that you're seeing and be talked through it, you need to then be able to use it. Because um, a lot of a lot of what we saw during the the pandemic was the data being used to kind of build trust, um, and that's what you can do with like really good data 
uh, based storytelling is kind of build trust in the actions that you want to take. And I think that's kind of a key thing. If I had one wish, it'd be there's no, never one answer. <laughs> right, yeah, during the pandemic, there was lots and lots of models. And, it, you know, people often ask me, well, and we've got a bit of it in, with the inquiry so far, you know, when was a model out? <laughs> and actually, the whole point of modelling and having a diverse set of models is they are all going to be saying different things, but you're looking at it from different lenses, and that is the value of data, kind of triangulating that with facts. So our biggest learning was actually we would do some modelling, but we would sit down with the, the guys managing the operational emergency that they then triangulated what the model was saying, what was happening out on the ground. That's the decision they then took. That's the narrative they were able to then support. That was the most powerful learning, actually, combining those two things. Great. Um, in fact, we've got Kathleen Caper from the Central Digital and Data Office who's left a comment online, which is, senior leaders need to be skilled enough to be intelligent commissioners and consumers of data, but not necessarily deep in code themselves. Which again, I think it's something that came up from uh, quite a few of our roundtable discussions. Um, I've, given the volume and quality of questions currently coming in online, um, I think I will come to the audience now. Um, I'll come to the room first. I'll take questions in batches of two or three. Please do wait for the microphone to come to you. Do tell us uh, who you are and where you're from. If you can, do remember that we're on the record. Um, please uh, keep questions short as well so we can get through as many as possible. So who would in the room would like to ask the first question? We've got two there and then one a little bit further back. John Taysom from the Centre for Science and Policy at Cambridge. Fascinating talk and um, analysis. Uh, the Royal Society has only just produced its report last month on privacy-enhancing technologies. So you've been operating way in the vanguard. Um, two questions. The first is, um, the Society's report is really about the technologies rather than all of the um, infrastructure that you've been describing that has to wrap around it. Uh, which of the institutes ought to be producing the next report which describes how these technologies can be used? Um, and the second part of my question is, how do we get coverage of what you've achieved, because there's still a perception that privacy is either on or off. Um, and of course, as you know, and as you've shown, uh, data sharing and gradations of data sharing are really where the uh, important um, decisions can be taken. Uh, so I'm curious about uh, that, please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Shreya. I work with local councils um, in terms of their data migration and generally data storage on a more technical level. And the question I would have is, firstly, when you're working with local authorities, you're working with the NHS, um, did you face any blockers in terms of data being stored in different forms? Um, and sort of how do you trans... <clears throat> and when you're sort of collecting that data, how would you sort of translate that all into a, into a form which can uh, be used universally and the sort of follow-up to that would be do you think that this is something which should be considered in terms of future policies should this be a perhaps a central government um, stance on the really technical bits of how we store and register our data into systems thank you thanks and then just there Hi, Ben Hawes, I'm a tech policy consultant. And I, I want to ask you, what more does central government need to do to ensure that the local public sector can, can deliver as it did during, during the pandemic when it came to data sharing? 
it's great to hear from LGA that there's uh, you know a bit more trust from central government in, in local government there, but really headline policies leveling up, dealing with the cost of living, transition to net zero, as you say, they're really just crises on a different time scale. And it, the local public sector still tends to be the poor relation when it comes to funding of digital and data transformation in the public sector. What do you need? What, what would you like government to do to, to really to show that it understands that the local public sector will deliver across all of its priorities? Great questions, thank you. Um, I'll come to you for the next round while we're in the room. Um, Juliet, given the local question, I'm tempted to come to you first. <laughs> Can I pick which ones I answer? <laughs> so, the blockers about um, within local government about data being stored in different formats and things, I, because, of the, because a lot of the data was coming from central government to local government, um, I, I, I'm not... I don't think there were, the blockers weren't necessarily that it was coming in different formats, but more the fact that it was quite difficult to do something with it when, when councils received it. Um, and particularly because it was about individuals and councils needed to take that and use it to sort of match it maybe to some of their own data to get more information about those people, to triage who they, who they went to. It became a real problem um, matching individuals and um, we spent quite a lot of time asking for um, unique property reference numbers to be added to data when it comes out which, um, which sounds very technical but it really transformed how quickly local authorities could take the data and use it um, and that was actually really important it also it was the authorities who were able to who had unique property reference numbers who were able to combine their data even before some of the shielded pay people data was available and they were themselves identifying the people that they thought were most at risk on the basis of the information they had about people they were already supporting. So that, that felt um, really important. It, it has also a really big impact on the quality of data and particularly address data. So in terms of policy ideas, um, already central government has been mandated to use um, UPRNs in all their new systems, um, which I think is really welcome. I think actually reviewing existing systems as well would, would be a really positive thing. I think increasingly it's going to be important to have really good, good quality data to do this sort of, sort of work. Thanks. You'd like to go next. Um, one of the things I think on the on those two points around blockers around data being held, but also what do you do to kind of power up local? They're like really interrelated in my head because um, in the early stages, I had a conversation with a few different people who I know around different local authorities who are sort of in those chief digital officer type roles, and you know, definitely the case that some local authorities, you know, were sort of saying well, is there an API? Can we just kind of have this data as a feed into our existing systems? But then there are other local authorities where that's just not the case. You know, they're like working off spreadsheets. And the problem, if you're kind of doing a service from the center is that there's, a, at the moment at least, a, a sort of lowest common denominator effect. 
where you sort of have to build the technology for the least capable rather than, uh, and, and a lot of that is driven by pace and, and you know, urgency. So maybe in a slower timescale, you could kind of have multiple options for, for, for that. But I think it relates to that kind of how do you power up the local authority question, which is, you know, maybe we need people on a more level playing field there so that they're not having to try and make sense of a daily cut of data off a spreadsheet on top of their other urgent day jobs, you know, um, and it's a bit more systemized. I would feel more comfortable about that because then you would know that the governance could be a bit baked into the systems, stop accidents or mistakes happening or, or reduce the likelihood anyway. Um, I think that, 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 that kind of just sort of level the playing field at the local authority level would be really super helpful. Thanks. I think one of the um, questions is alluding to kind of taking data out of one system, combining with data from another system, and how do you then make sense of it? Um, one of the things that we've taken forward is really to almost create as part of your use case the data elements and the standardization of what that element is so that regardless of your source system you're actually combining with that combine that with actually i think central government could do a lot more around uprns those types of what's the reference data set that we should all be working towards and having that available nationally that's it's kind of some of the things that we're trying to do in the nhs which is create a set of reference data so for for postcodes for uprn so that we can negotiate we can work with social care with um nhs number and those being kept separate from some of the other data so you don't have to keep drawing that data out of systems and then you can move to smaller packages of data being extracted triangulated and then you can almost create your pathway through that. So actually adopting different ways of handling the data and processing the data. Then coming to your point about privacy enhancing technologies, I think it's a real, um, it's a bit of a minefield at the moment. You know, there, there are lots of companies out there that will help you de-identify and re-identify. What we want to do is almost use that as a service so that anybody can use a service and you're standardising the way that you you de-identify data and you, you create your kind of tokens for re-identification. So we want it to be almost used in a way that means you don't have to take identifiable data out of the system. It's kind of de-identified on the fly. So, and that's part of what, what we're, our architecture is moving towards rather than just having it within a system, within a platform. Yeah. And so building on that kind of aspect of who's in, who's in kind of control of some of that, so it's probably a joint thing between the CDDO as the Centre Digital and Data Office and the CDI as the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation. And it's likely that they'll have the biggest say in terms of how some of that management is worked. Um, you've already got services that use sort of data minim minimization techniques. So it's the kind of, they don't need to know what the condition is that someone has. They just need to know that it's a vulnerability and that was used in the Vulnerable People Service as a way of not passing incredibly sensitive information through, but instead just passing a flag to say, this is a thing, just they need to be on this list, don't ask more questions um, and things. And then you've also got the ability to use sort of secure research environments to do the data analysis sort of off your own sort of grid and within a sort of within a central service, 
So it'll be interesting to see how uptake of like, the integrated data service runs in terms of being able to sort of do a lot of data work, but not in a sort of local environment. So the data security then is maintained and isn't sort of being replicated across different systems. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go online um, for the next set of questions, the top three, a couple of which are, are sort of a bit more health specific, but I think we can probably broaden them out uh, for other panellists as well. Um, so first of all, Anonymous asks, how about a data sharing officer with skills in programming, question mark, to go alongside the data protection officer? And um, if you go to our legislation case study, there's actually some quite interesting discussion about something similar in that. So data sharing officer as well as data protection officer. Um, anonymous, a different one presumably, asks, shouldn't facilitating data accessibility to patients also be at the forefront of data sharing. Again, I suppose there's an analogue there with um, members of the public generally in how their data is used. And um, Jürgen asks, citizens' juries found that the Palantir platform was the least trustworthy approach used in the pandemic. Open Safely was the most trusted. Um, so why is NHS England progressing as it is um, for the future? Again, I suppose the general question there is, um, again, public engagement, something that's come up quite a bit. How have you seen that managed well? How should one manage that well? I might come in on the data protection officer, data sharing officer question first before we sort of descend into health too much um, and things. Um, I think I kind of, I don't know, I don't think I'd want to add more people into the mix. I think a data protection officer is there to enable data sharing and the protection is a sort of bit of a misnomer in their name. Like they are there to sort of protect, to make sure that the data is used in a proper way that isn't sort of breaking the sort of the legislative rules and barriers and guardrails that already exist. So I think adding more people into the mix would be unnecessary. And instead it's the kind of like, that's what they're there for. They are there to enable data sharing. They should be understanding the, where the risks are, what the legal landscape that they're operating in and enable that process. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was sort of inevitable, wasn't it? <laughs> um, public trust and Palantir. This is a, and, um, hands up, we're just going through a procurement, so I don't really want to go through the specifics of Palantir. But in a general sense of public trust, public trust is, is really important to us. How we engage with it is it's really difficult as a central body because everything we say gets kind of skewed and attacked. So part of it is the transparency agenda, which I think everyone signs up to. And I think a big portion of that is actually allowing access to your own record, right? regardless of which public sector you're talking about. I think that's going to revolutionise people and having then transparency of how do I opt out of that data being shared. And we talk about data sharing all the time. So the Open Safely piece is actually we are using that information without extracting the data from those source systems. So I think as we move towards this kind of secure data environment, that's, we'll be doing that more and more. But somewhere, there has to be a reference data set and, and some way of logically managing that data. Once you end up doing everything by queries, it's really good for analysis and research. It's less useful for some of the operational uses that we want to, to do in the NHS. And that's why we are working closely with Open Safety to get it on an on a ongoing basis so we're not getting rid of it. The data platform is being used for different purposes. 
Thanks. And just to say there's a bit more on open safely in our GPDPR case study. And I know the NHS COVID-19 data still has a bit more about some of the engagement um, around that as well. I think there's like an interesting point as well around doing a bit more than lip service to involving like a privacy view or a, a, a kind of a, a sort of people's data advocacy view into the initial design of products or services. You know, I've had lots of value from working directly with um, experts in those spaces who are not government employees. They're, they're um, sort of part of interest groups or, or just advocates. Um, and, at, and, and not just kind of later at a sort of, can you just check what we've already come up with and definitely signed off and we're actually building right now. But like much earlier than that to say, you know, is this the right approach? Um, I've found that really valuable in the past and it's saved, you know, a lot of wrong turns, I think. And I do think that's something that local government does really well, right? Nationally, we do it less well. <laughs> so, you know, it does, it does play to that strength, doesn't it? Understanding your population, understanding, you know, the context in which you're trying to do some of these things. I guess it's also about not just involving the public in the design, but also communicating with the greater majority of the public that weren't involved in that as to how it was arrived at and how, um, how decisions were informed mm. by other members of the public. I um, think being really unambiguous around uh, your answers to direct questions and things is <laughs> yes, really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on the data sharing officer point, I, I think I agree with Paul, actually. I think the issue is not that there's not a data sharing officer, but more that the data protection officer who is there is quite thinly spread. In most authorities, it's a person. Um, and so that's, I think, where the blockage can sometimes be. Obviously, in a crisis, it was prioritised. So data sharing got up and ready very quickly. In, outside of a crisis, I think it's off, it often takes a long time, not because... There's not a will to do it, but just because, you know, it's one person doing many, many things. And also they're taking on the majority of the risk, aren't they? So just that. having it pivotal to one person actually means yeah. they're taking all the internal risk. So actually having an organisational framework on how they can share that risk yeah. is, you know, rather than having two roles, it's, it's what's the governance framework around it. It's, it's essential anyway. Like GDPR, for example, is is designed at a like, very high level. It requires you to do a very specific evaluation, which means you have to have expertise, you know? And that can't all be one person's job. You know, I think um, we've got great people in CDDO who did masses of this during uh, COVID. Um, Kathleen was one of them. Um, and, it, but, but you have to kind of take something already sort of formed to those, those people. They shouldn't be required to kind of start from, you know, the floor and evaluate everything. Thank you. We've got just under 10 minutes left. So I'm going to take one more batch from in the room. We had a question down here and one right behind, and I will take the gentleman on the end there as well. Sorry for those of you I didn't get to. Hello. Um, thank you very much for a really interesting panel discussion. Um, my name's Lizzie Kumari. I'm at the UK COVID Inquiry. Um, but I'm asking a question mostly from the perspective of net zero, which is what I was working on before. 
Um, so one of the barriers with net zero um, and, and data and, and government action is actually access to data um, outside of the public sector. So are there any learnings that you've got from the pandemic about getting private sector data and putting that to um, public good use? Yeah, we used a lot of data. Uh, in fact, Sorry, we've, we, we've, we've actually got a very similar question online as well, which is in the energy and water sectors, we've been struggling more than 10 years to get sharing of data between commercial companies on who's vulnerable and eligible for extra support. Any suggestions to catalyse that? So that's a theme that's coming up elsewhere as well. And we've got the question there. Thanks. Hi, I'm uh, Bill Roberts from TPX Impact. We've been talking a lot about data sharing and getting access to the data is obviously a necessary starting point, but we haven't talked much about what's being shared and the whole quality aspect reminds me a bit of the start of the transparency years when you know, never mind the quality, just count my data set. <laughs> and if we're going to follow the science, you need to be able to track the decision back to the data and have trust in where that data came from and understand the, the provenance and the analysis that went on. So how can we make that happen as well as just sharing the data set? Thank you. And the gentleman on the end there. Yes, I was at an event a couple of weeks ago in Nottingham, a central government event, and the two things that came out to me, one was the importance of data sharing and the value behind that, clearly. Um, the other was about kind of, you know, failing fast, being able to kind of iterate your way there rather than having to know the whole answer straight away. Um, absolutely agree with the point that was made about, you know, the hard yards and DPIA and that sort of thing are absolutely important. You, you regret it if you try to cut the corner. Just interested to see if there's any learnings about... Intuitively, the two feel, things feel slightly at odds, right? So... All, doing all that hard yards when you don't know what the full answer is and you might have to come around to do it again, are those two things at odds? Or did you find during the pandemic that you were having to iterate and actually there's a way through that conundrum? Thank you. Who wants to go first? I can if you want. Cool. I think um, quite, you, can do, you, know, you can do quite a lot of what we need to do under the current legislation. So it's interesting to me that you know, we're doing new legislation and I think we've had conversations before on this where I think, I think we should be stress testing you know, the things that are being introduced to see if they actually fix some of these problems that you're all surfacing, which is, um, you know, does, does this new piece of paperwork like create a condition where we would be able to enter into agreement with this sector or this sector or this sector? Because it didn't, I didn't know at the beginning of doing the vulnerable people service that I needed to be talking to the supermarkets. That was like a five-day-in conversation. <laughs> um, so, so you don't always know. And, and I don't think any of the document, like the law can kind of be exhaustive, nor should it be. But I think there are ways to test some of this to kind of find out whether or not it actually helps solve some of the existing problems before it kind of gets ratified in new law. Uh, that'd be interesting to, to get more people involved in that as well. Um, I think that would help with the quality of data question as well. But... Um, and then I think the DPIA versus kind of agile, I think uh, this is why expertise is so important, right? It, like most people in that position already instinctively know the answer when someone is posing a question to them. They're just then going away to validate and make sure there's nothing strange about it that they haven't already considered. So there is, you know, expertise in that space. It's why we were able to move quickly, I think. So to come back to your question around commercial sector data, we did. We, we did a lot of um, the Google data about movement. Um, we, we actually used ACORN data 
which is commercially available around households, etc. Um, that was really important. I, I can see the sensitivity of commercial data, um, but I, I do think being able to triangulate that gave us different models of, of movement um, around the pandemic. So we, we used as much as we could. Yeah. And there was even wastewater as well. I mean, there was, there was this huge piece of work on looking at wastewater, um, which is actually proven quite valid. To your point about, is it... I think a DBIA is a, a live document. I don't think it's ever done once. So I think working agile and updating it as you, as you understand is valid. And quite often, you know, if you put a DPIA to say, actually, we're going to do a bit of a fishing expedition, but you're, you're clear on what the controls are, I think that's perfectly valid. Yeah. Um, so I really like your idea about the stress testing, really, because I, I think... And I, I realise I'm sounding a bit like a broken record here, but often local government gets forgotten. But often local government is the implementer of the decision that's made at a national level. But it's quite rare that local government is involved in the design of the system and what they are going to need to use it for, how they might want to use it. So I would really welcome that. I think that would be a really positive development. In terms of access to private sector data, similarly, um, I know that... We worked with CACI, who made data available to local authorities um, at a small level to help them with their you know, targeting of, of services and things like that. So it can be done. Um, it was for that period, um, it would be good to explore doing that more routinely um, for the public good, because I think that would be really welcome. Yeah. And similarly, in the sort of public-private data partnerships. Um, sort of data sharing for counter-fraud activity tends to rely on a lot of sort of banking data and things. And they tend, that tends to have to go through sort of slightly more rigorous, rigorous kind of testing. Um, but there are ways of doing that, again, in sort of regulatory sandboxes. So that's where you work with the regulator and the private company to sort of find, a, find the right way to do it. Um, and things in a sort of private space before it goes sort of fully live. And so there are different ways of doing that, and that's probably the one to explore if you want sort of more long-term sort of private sector sort of data access. Um, and I think it comes back to the kind of, you know, it needs to be gen you know, genuine and good for, for all parties involved. Um, in terms of sort of some of the data quality and the sort of audit trail of its provenance, um, I know that central government are currently working on a data standard that would at least say, you know, this is the data, this is where it's hitting certain quality markers. Um, Part of that, I think, you can get to analysis where you can at least see where the provenance of the data has come from. Um, but then, yeah, baking that into something is, needs a bit more work to get there. Yeah. One of the things we've committed to is looking at the benefits of the analysis that we've done and actually recording that alongside the data that's been shared in order to do that. It's quite hard and it takes it's quite a long track as well, but it's... I think it's one of those things, once it becomes more customary to do, people will see the benefit of it. Because really, when you put in your, your application for, for data sharing, you are saying, we're going to do this good stuff. So actually following up is, is, is just good practice, but it's hard. Yeah. We've got two minutes left, so I'm going to squeeze in a cheeky final question from online, and I'll go Paul, Ming, Juliet, and Jess, the original order. Um, so short answer to a very difficult question, and any final thoughts that you have as well. Um, 
What do the panel see as the biggest challenge for data sharing? Standards, technology, creativity, need, skills or public trust? And is that biggest challenge receiving the biggest funding or focus? So in a couple of sentences, Paul. <laughs> what was the list again? <laughs> Standards, technology, creativity, need, skills or public trust? Oh, is, it, is it the creativity bit? It's the culture. Um, I'm going to go off list. Um, even, even, though, even though, even though I asked, even though, even though I asked for it twice, it's the culture. Like the technology exists, the skills are there. If they can be accessed, I, I like the idea of sort of analysts working with senior folk to get there um, and things. It's how you get people to work in those teams and how you get people to sort of really sort of go for the importance of the data and the data analysis and what that works for. And I think the way to do that would be to have just more case studies, more good uses, sort of out there that people can point at and go, but this is what it can do, kind of things. Um, is it getting enough funding? Probably not, but I was always going to say that, so I'm going to sort of hand over. <laughs> Thanks. I quite like the culture one. I've, for me, I've, I've got two public trust and standards that people stop arguing about. Because <laughs> yeah, there's lots of standards out there, but nobody really agrees with them. I, th I think the public trust definitely isn't invested in sufficiently and we don't even have a, a means of having a proper dialogue i don't mean just sending out you know um snippets and whatever but it's, it's really how do you do that public engagement so that people are engaging with it and i think access to their own data will start engaging and maybe have that conversation but i don't think it's invested enough great thank you juliet so I was also going to multiple pick as well, um, and I had two. I had two of your. I've got three, and your two are included. So I also had standards. I also had public trust. I added in technology, um, purely because we know that local authorities, some of them are on quite legacy systems. And I think it holds them back. You know your point, Jess, about spreadsheets rather than APIs and things like that. I think standards is so important because. The technology is nothing without well-managed data inside it. Um, and public trust, that's, we have to have that. Otherwise, we won't get anywhere with doing it. So. And no, it probably isn't well-funded. Thanks. So, Jess, I think we're expecting four from you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think different parts of that list kind of come in a different order. Like, some of it can be dealt with kind of concurrently but some of it's sequential like I think if we want departments to do things differently to share data you know with with each other for a sort of specific purpose then it has to be a funded priority otherwise they'll do the other funded priorities <laughs> that's how it works Great. Well, thank you uh, very much. A few parish notices before those of you in the room are allowed onto the landing for drinks and canapes. Um, the video and audio of this event will be available on the IFG website in the next day or so. Please do share that widely. Um, you can also find all six case studies. Um, we've touched on many of them tonight um, on the IFG website too. The final report will follow in the next few days. Uh, Jess has also been blogging about uh, various of the themes that we've talked about today. Uh, for those of you in the room, uh, you can scan the QR code on the leaflet on your desk and 
and anyone watching at home, uh, you can go to the Scott Logic website. There are lots of other events coming up at the IFG over the next few weeks. The next one is 10 a.m. next Thursday, the 16th of February. It's a keynote address from Labour's Shadow Home Secretary, Yvette Cooper, so do sign up for that one. We've also got events coming up on the spring budget and the pressure on public services, whether it's time for a new public services ombudsman and tackling the UK's energy efficiency problem. If you enjoyed tonight's event, I think you'll be particularly interested in our In Conversation with Sir Patrick Valance, the Government Chief Scientific Advisor, on Monday the 27th of February, and our monthly Data Bytes event series, which showcases interesting data projects from across government. You can watch the 38 events to date on the IFG website. One of them actually touches on the wastewater um, that um, UKHSA and NHS used. Um, and you can keep your eyes peeled for the details of the next one, which will be at 6pm on Wednesday the 1st of March. All that's left for me to say are three huge thank yous. First of all, to you, the audience here in the building and those of you watching online, and sorry that I couldn't get through all of your brilliant questions and contributions in the room and online. Second, a big thank you to Scott Logic, not just for providing the canapes outside tonight, uh, but supporting um, this entire project so brilliantly uh, from the start. And third, a massive thank you, and please do join me in a round of applause for our fantastic speakers this evening. Thank you very much for <laughs>